So I have a question for you. I'm wondering who taught you how to lie? It's kind of an odd thing. Most of us can think of who taught us to ride a bike. Can you think of that person? Who taught you to play a musical instrument? Who taught you to play your favorite game? But who taught you how to lie? I was reading some research this week that said as early as six months old, a baby at six months old can fake cry to get their mom or dad to come in the room. Isn't that awesome? You just imagine the little six-month-old like, you suckers, I can get you in here anytime I want. It's amazing, six months old. Uh, we can start lying that early, and then we just grow and develop, and we acquire language, and then we can use our words to lie, to deceive, to be dishonest. There's a video that kind of went crazy on the internet a while back. Some of you may have seen it. It's a Scottish mother with her two-year-old little boy, and she walks in the room, and he's holding red lipstick, her red lipstick, and the mirror is all filled with red lipstick, and she confronts him to see if he'll fess up. Have you seen this? I'll show you. Let's take a look. No, who drew on mommy's mirror? I don't know. Was it you? No. Who was it? A Batman. <laughs> a Batman. Batman did it? A Batman did it. It's Batman. That's Scottish for Batman. <laughs> Batman did it. <laughs> oh, man. As we get older, we just get a little more um, able to do this. So there's a researcher out of the University of Massachusetts, Robert Feldner, and he says that on average, in a 10-minute conversation, people will lie three times in 10 minutes. Okay, so our sermons are usually like 30 minutes long, <laughs> which would mean you're about to hear like nine lies. So from now forward, 10-minute messages. But Mark Twain, uh, one time, he, he kind of did a mashup of a couple Bible verses. Like, these are in the Bible, just not mashed up like this. And uh, he said this, a lie is an abomination unto the Lord and a very present help in time of trouble. <laughs> like, that is so true, right? That is actually not a bad definition at all because here's the thing. The reason we lie, the reason I lie, is I am not confident that God will take care of me if I just tell the truth. I'm not confident that God will take care of me if I just tell the truth. So I lie because I don't want to feel your rejection. Or maybe I don't want to enter conflict with you. Or I don't want to face the embarrassment or the shame. See, to live in confidence with God would be to actually live in the truth. And I can't actually live in the truth unless I am confident in something greater than how my circumstances will turn out. So John, friend with Jesus, heard Jesus say, 
the words, the truth will set you free. So lies will bind you. The truth will set you free. The evil one is the father of lies. John said this, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So that's the great invitation to live in confidence in God, to live in the light. Uh, but before we talk more about that invitation, I just want to talk a little bit about the anatomy of deception. Why do we lie? How do we lie? What does that anatomy of deception look like? So um, briefly this morning, we're just going to talk, this is the map. We're going to talk about Jacob, a guy named Eugene Peterson, and an Amish guy. Okay, that's the map. Jacob in the Bible, a guy named Eugene Peterson, and an Amish guy. That's where we're headed. So the story of Jacob in the Bible, which we've been looking at in this series, is just from the beginning filled with deception. It is a theme from the beginning to the end. At the beginning of Jacob's story, we find uh, that his dad, Jacob's dad, is Isaac, and Isaac has favorites, and Jacob is not one of his favorites. Esau, Jacob's brother, is Isaac, the father's favorite. Esau's the favorite. Jacob is the not favorite. And um, Isaac is dying. He is losing his senses. He is growing old. He is blind. And this is what the Bible says. He says, um, and he says this, Isaac says this to Esau, his favorite, favorite son, not Jacob, his not favorite son. Uh, Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. There is deception going on here, and we can completely miss it, but an ancient reader would pick up on the deception right away. Because here's the deal. It was actually kind of a stock scene in ancient literature when someone was dead, when the father was dying to gather his children around his deathbed and to bless them, particularly his sons. And the, the, um, the oldest would get the, the biggest blessing, um, but they would each get a blessing. The firstborn would get the biggest blessing, but they each would get a blessing. But here, in this story, ancient readers would have been like, wait a minute, that's not how, the, that's not how it's supposed to go. That's not, that's not how that moment, that deathbed moment is supposed to work. There's deception going on, and we miss it. Isaac doesn't want to bring both his sons into the room because he's playing favorites. And so he just wants to bring Esau and give Esau the blessing. He does not want to bring in Jacob. So he's kind of finessing this. Now Esau would know this. And Esau could call him out and say, Dad, that's not right. That's not, I mean, he could have brought it into the light, but he doesn't. Instead, he just says, okay, I'll go hunt the game. I'll bring you the stew. And it's like he's colluding with his dad. Think about deception for a minute, just the anatomy of deception. Deception 
almost always involves at some point collusion with another person. And here it begins in this story. Esau wants in on this, and he doesn't want Jacob there. So Rebecca's the mom in the story. She's got a favorite too. Her favorite is Jacob. So she sees what's going down, and she says, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. She could, as the mom, she could have brought it to the light. She could have said, hey, you guys, we're a family. Let's talk about this dynamic. This is not right. But she doesn't. She forms her own web of deception in response to this deception. And often, we, at this moment, Rebecca, the mom, we feel justified to do it. Like, you're deceiving, so I can deceive. And so she begins her plot. She says to Jacob, who's her favorite, hey, you put on your brother's clothes. I'll go cook some food. Then you take that food, you give it to your dad, and you just lie to him and say that you're your brother. And then you'll get the blessing. Now, at that point, again, Jacob has the chance. He could step into the light. He could say, no, Mom, we can't do that. That's not honest. That's not right. That's not true. But he doesn't do that either. He colludes with her. All right, I'll do it. Jacob puts on his brother Esau's clothes. He takes the food that his mom has made, and he goes into his father's deathbed. This is heartbreaking. This is like a tragic scene in the Bible. The scriptures say Jacob went to his father and said, my father. Here's what's interesting at this point. There's deception going on, a whole bunch, but the words are still technically accurate. And that is the anatomy of deception. Often deception starts before the words are actually false. My father, that's true. But his dad picks up on it and says, hey, wait a minute, um, who are you? Which son are you? It's another opportunity for Jacob to come clean. He could say, dad, I'm sorry, we were wrong, please forgive me, and he doesn't. He just carries on. Jacob said to his father, and this is where the deception turns to words, to lying with words. Jacob says to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me this blessing. Now, Isaac, the dad, is still skeptical. And so he says, how did you find it so quickly, my son? And then Jacob gives this reason. He says, the Lord your God, dad. Dad, the Lord your God? Like, you're such a man of faith. Your God helped me. Your God, Dad, he gave me success. The Lord, your God, gave me success. This is where the lie, it's like he's using his spirituality to deceive, and we do this. Some of you have heard me tell this story a few years ago. We, um, some of our staff went to a conference, a bunch of pastors downtown Denver, and we were downtown and going to these different sessions of the conference and in between a bunch of pastors in Denver just sitting talking standing around talking to each other and one of the pastors I'm in a little group and one of the pastors says to this other pastor so how big are you guys these days like how big is your church what's your attendance and the pastor's like we're like 500 and how about you and the other pastor says oh we're like 1200 and then they look at me so there's this moment right where I can either Lie, deceive, be dishonest, exaggerate, 
lose my integrity just to have, you know, feel like I'm a little more impressive in their eyes or something, manage my image. Or I can walk in the light. I can keep my integrity. I can speak the truth. So I just told them, we're like 2,000 people. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't really do that. I didn't really do that. <laughs> but here's what we see with the story of Jacob. It is hard. Do you just see it in the story? It's hard to stop with just one lie. It's almost like potato chips. It's hard to stop with just one. It's hard to stop with just one lie because then the questions start coming. And then you got to keep that story up. And you got to keep the deception going. And you got to keep the story making sense. There is a uh, wonderful book by a guy, Eugene Peterson. And many of you will know his name. He did the message translation of the Bible. So Eugene Peterson wrote this book. He's in his 80s now. But he wrote this book called The Pastor. And it's really his memoir. And he's just talking about his days in ministry, and he released it a couple years ago. But in that book, okay, you guys, no joke, this is Eugene Peterson, okay? Um, just a brilliant author, scholar, fascinating writer. Um, he talks about his, uh, when he did a church plant early on in his ministry. He's the pastor of a church plant, and it was a Presbyterian church plant. And uh, he, part of the deal was he had to send reports back to the denominational headquarters to tell them how his church plant was doing. And so he is writing these faithfully, and he starts to just think, like, is anybody reading these? Is anybody reading these reports that I'm sending back to headquarters? And uh, so he does a little experiment. And he puts a story in his report where he says, um, I've started drinking too much, and I was totally drunk last Sunday when I delivered my sermon. And one of the elders had to come out of the bullpen and come and finish the message for me. So he writes this in his report. No response from headquarters. So he's like, hmm, okay. So then, <laughs> guys, this is Eugene Peterson who, like, wrote the Bible. <laughs> well, that's a lie. He didn't write the Bible, but you know what I mean. He Translation of the Bible, first lie of the sermon right there. No. <laughs> so no, he, um, then he writes and he says, um, I started having an affair with someone in the church and we were making out in the church sanctuary and somebody caught us and I thought I was going to get fired, but then I found out the church is made up of a bunch of swingers and attendance actually doubled the next weekend. He's like writing these, <laughs> he's writing, this is Eugene Peterson, he's writing these like super elaborate stories in his report. No response from headquarters. Then he says, it just keeps going. Then he says, they, oh, we were using hallucinogenic mushrooms for communion. And it was the best worship we've ever had. <laughs> so just going on and on. No response from headquarters. So anyway, the story goes on. And he, um, they reach a point where he's graduated from having to turn those in. They have a little celebration for his church plant for surviving. And he goes to the party and he says to these leaders, you guys re read those reports I sent you all those years for like three years? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we read them. And uh, he goes on and says, so you read about how I wrote the story about getting drunk and the mushrooms and the, all this. And very interesting because have you ever been there? No one said, you know, I didn't read them personally. I think maybe somebody else read them. Nobody said, 
I am really embarrassed you caught me right now, red-handed. And I'm sorry, I was wrong. I lied. They didn't say, you know, I told a lie because I didn't want you to think badly of me. I told a lie because I didn't want you to think I was slacking in my job of reading those reports. I didn't want to look inefficient. I didn't want to look lazy. I didn't want to look untrustworthy. That's why I lied. This is so hard for us to step into the light. It is so hard. And what we see throughout the scriptures and throughout history and in our own lives is Jesus' community is a community of people who are not perfect truth-tellers. We're not. We are all Jacob sometimes. People will, will use online dating services, will uh, often, you know, just do their profile and um, say they are richer and smarter and more attractive and younger than they actually are. We will post pictures of ourselves that are 10, 15, 20 years older than they are, which kind of poses a problem when we meet face-to-face, but we will do this. People will go to their boss and say, that was such a good decision, when that's a lie. People will come up to a pastor after a sermon. That was such a good sermon. That's a lie. We will do this. It gets so deeply inside of us, and the reason we lie is it just gets in our mouths and our neurons of our brains, and we don't even see it. There's a self-deception that often comes first, and it's a habit, and it's a strategy, and it's an image management, and it's a skill, and it's an art form, and it's a way of life, which is why confession is so important. It's often not even a lie in my head. The story I'm making up in my head, it's true to me. It's interesting because we're preparing this sermon. I haven't even had a chance to read this article, but yesterday, Time Magazine comes to my door. Uh, The title this week is, Is Truth Dead? We're not the only ones talking about this. But we make up these stories. Researcher and author Brene Brown says this, did you know that when we feel discomfort, either physical or emotional, our brains are chemically rewarded in the short term for coming up with a story to explain what's happening. It doesn't matter if the story is true or not. It just needs to be certain. Think about that. My brain is chemically rewarded for coming up with a story. It doesn't matter if the story is true or not. See, I don't trust that if I tell the truth, if I embrace the truth, if I walk in the truth, that God will take care of me. I don't trust that if I embrace the light, walking in the light, living in the light, that God will take care of me. And so I begin in my shame to put on these fig leaves, these coverings, in the form of deception. There is this great, we just sang about it a moment ago, and I just love that image of 
coming to the table, right here we are in this weekly gathering, this weekly practice of worship. And one of the things we do, the centerpiece of our service, is to come to the table of communion together. And just a moment ago we sang, it doesn't matter what you've done, just come. Why? Because it's all about what he's done. It doesn't matter what you've done. You come into the light because of what he's done. And that's what it looks like to receive grace. The, um, the question is, where is God calling you to step into the light? And what does it mean that the blood of Jesus purifies me? Just to close, I want to tell you one last story. Um, it's written by a guy who teaches preaching, and this is his own experience. His name is Mike Graves. He wrote this story, and it's, it's just well-written, so I'm just going to read it to you. Um, Mike Graves wrote this. When a colleague and I were invited to be a part of a former student's installation service, we agreed enthusiastically and traveled together to his town. Joe had many family members coming to the service, so we were surprised when we were uh, told that we were going to all go eat out that evening at a restaurant before coming to church. I suggested that my colleague and I go ahead to the restaurant and put our name in because there were 19 of us, and I wondered how all 19 would be seated in time. The restaurant was packed. I wiggled through the crowd to the front of the line and found an Amish man standing behind an old pulpit. Next to him was a hand-carved sign that read, please do not give your name until everyone in your party is present. Anybody have any idea where the story is headed? <laughs> I understood the reason for the restaurant's policy, but I also knew that it would take a long time for a table of 19 to be ready. I said, yes, uh, the Graves party, uh, the name is Graves, we have a party of 19. And the Amish man, with his beard and hat, looked at me and said, and is your whole party present? Haltingly, I said, yes. Okay, I lied. But it wasn't as if I was trying to beat the system. After all, even the smaller parties were waiting for 30 minutes, so we'd be putting in our waiting time too, not a big deal. But my colleague disagreed with me. You lied to the Amish, he said? You shouldn't lie to the Amish. Like lying to the Baptist is no big deal, but the Amish? No way. I said, by the time they call our name, Joe and his family are going to be here. Two minutes later, the announcement came. Graves, party of 19. I went back to the Amish man and said, Yes, uh, the Graves party, well, um, we're not all here yet. I was nervous now. I may have giggled a little. The man looked me in the eyes and said, did you lie? This was a restaurant. This was the lobby of a restaurant. Dead silence. It was as if we were in church. The people immediately around us waited, wide-eyed and wondering. Everybody is watching me and the Amish guy. I replied softly, yes, I lied. <laughs> this is a guy who teaches preaching. Yes, I lied. <laughs> Love it.
Come with me, he said, the Amish man said. I couldn't imagine what he was going to do. <laughs> what kind of punishment do the Amish hand out to liars? <laughs> I pictured stocks or caning. We followed him through the restaurant to the back where he opened the door to a banquet room. A huge table was set with bread and jams. He offered a gentle smile. Have some bread. You are forgiven. To me, that is the gospel. Have some bread. You are forgiven. To me, that is the conundrum. I wonder what the Amish guy is going to do. Is he going to put me in stocks? Is he going to really be angry with me? Is he going to... Here's the banquet room. Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed and killed, he brings his friends into a banquet table and he puts before them bread. And he says, take and eat. This is my body. You are forgiven. And to me, that is the gospel. That is a picture of grace. Have some bread. You're forgiven. So as we close, I just want to take a moment to pray together as we prepare our hearts to come to the table. You know, if you've never kind of come to God in a posture of confession, or maybe it's just been a little while, you have shame, because we all have shame. You have guilt, maybe regret too. And maybe you want to stop hiding and come home, step into the light. And the most amazing thing is we can do that anytime, wherever we are, and whatever we think we are hiding, God already sees and he already knows. And a banquet table is set. And there he stands. Have some bread, you are forgiven. But even God does not force us to step into the light. We choose to do that. God already knows and he already loves every secret in our hearts and in our lives. And he gave his son to die and be risen for you and I. And through the death of Jesus, through the blood that was shed for me on the cross, through the sacrificial love of God, we can be made clean. And so right now, I just invite you to talk to God about whatever might be in your mind, in your heart. God, our confession to you is we are all Jacob. I'm Jacob. I deceive myself first and foremost. And then I proceed to deceive others. 
But God, you see and you know and you love. And so we choose to step into the light. Our hope is from you. Jesus, you're the forgiver. God, you are the light. And we receive this grace, this forgiveness from you, and then we just turn around, we praise you, we thank you, we worship you, we adore you, we marvel at you. And you deserve all the honor and all the glory. That you are good and you care for us. We pray all this in the powerful name, the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.